Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or other information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, I know in most of the world, and not just here, and it's quite evident here in the state that we live in and in the country that we live in, that by the minute, by the hour, um, the world around us is just moving more and more into godlessness and away from the truth of God and the standards of God. And if this morning, if you're thinking of that and you know how are we going to keep going on, if you're thinking of the next generation, how are they going to go on? How, how are the children going to grow up in an environment like that? Then I trust that this passage that we're looking at will be an encouragement to you. And even if you're not particularly thinking about that, I trust that as we look at God's Word, we will see how just by faith in who God is and what He has said, God will enable his people to persevere no matter what. And that's been the argument of the author of Hebrews all along. Because these people, these Hebrew Christians, wanted to defect from following Christ because they were facing persecution. And they, wanted the, they were tempted to go the easy way and go back to Judaism because that was more culturally acceptable and they wouldn't have to suffer any persecution. And the author's point is to try and encourage them to say, no, you you can't give up on Christ. Cling to your confession of Christ. Hold fast to that confession. Because the only way that you are going to persevere is by faith. And so he speaks on faith in this glorious chapter, this Hebrews 11. First, he gives of how the, the kind of impact faith has in a person's life. And then he gives various examples in the way faith has worked out in the lives of the Old Testament saints. And just by way of reminder, because I think this is, you know, I've had so many good conversations with so many of you over the past few weeks in how we've been looking at faith and understanding faith from the book of Hebrews. Well, first of all, just by way of summary, faith is not some inherent power that we cook up. You know, unlike many of the ignorant uh, teachers out there and perhaps even false teachers who say, oh, you know, if you really have faith and if you have that much of faith, you can, you can pretty much do anything. And the Bible doesn't teach anything of that sort. That faith has no inherent power in itself. And we also just generally, as we've looked at the examples, have seen that faith is not a blind faith. It's not a wishful thinking just because I'm saying I have faith in God that things will just happen. No, it is faith in God and his word and his ways, and submitting to that. 
As we have seen, faith is simply entrusting ourselves to God and his word and his ways. It is recognizing it is God who does it all. And I'm simply to entrust myself to him. He's the one who saves me. He's the one who sustains me. And he's the one who will save me ultimately in the end. And I'm simply to entrust myself to that and entrust myself to him this way. It has nothing to do with our abilities, our feelings, our giftedness, our circumstance, or anything of that sort. And so we've seen various examples and just the different ways in which faith has worked out in so many of the Old Testament saints. And this morning we come particularly now focusing on another major Old Testament saint, that's Moses. And we're going to see from the life of Moses, again, just different things about how faith is manifested. Just by way of outline, I've just got four points from this passage. We'll see how faith models allegiance to God. That's in verse 23. Then we'll see how faith clings to God for satisfaction. That's in verses 24 to 26. Then we'll see how faith waits patiently on God in verse 27. And then lastly, we'll see how faith looks to God for salvation in verse 28. So firstly... Faith models allegiance to God. Look at verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So over here, while it starts by saying, By faith, Moses... Really, it's talking about when Moses was born and the faith that it's referring to. It's not actually Moses' faith, but it's the faith of his parents. Now, just to give you a quick context, the Israelites were in Egypt and they had been there for quite a while now and they had become quite numerous. And even as this group of Israelites had become so numerous, Pharaoh is now concerned that these Israelites would become too big and too powerful for Egypt. Perhaps they'll overthrow Egypt. And so Pharaoh gave orders that all male babies be thrown into the Nile River and be killed. And it was during this time that Moses was born. Now, we don't know much about Moses' parents. There's very little mentioned about them. But one thing that the author of Hebrews wants to emphasize is the faith of Moses' parents. Just 
He wants to highlight how even right from the early days of Moses' life, what was his influence? See, when the Israelite male babies were ordered to be killed, it says that Moses' parents hid their baby for three months by faith. And the reason the author says they did that is because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now that's an interesting phrase there. They hid the baby because they saw the child was beautiful. Even, you know, Exodus 2.2 will confirm this. We'll actually talk about this again. If you look at Exodus 2.2 where it says there that the baby was a fine child and therefore the baby was hidden. Now, what does that mean? I mean, the parents thought that the baby was so beautiful, was so cute, so they're like, okay, we need to hide the child. So if the baby is not cute, you know, let, you know, let the baby be murdered. I, I don't think that's what the author is getting at. You know, it's normal for all parents, at least even if it's not the first few weeks when a baby is born, but it's normal for all parents to think that their babies are very beautiful. They're the most intelligent, the most beautiful, and so on and so forth. Add whatever superlative you want to that baby. And that's just normal for parents to do that. So what, what, what is the author trying to say here? And even in Exodus where it says that the child was beautiful. Well, I think Stephen's speech that we read this morning in our Bible reading gives us a clue. Look at Acts 7.20, and this is Stephen giving a commentary. And Stephen says that baby Moses, when he was born, was beautiful in God's sight. In other words, this child was no ordinary child. There was something about baby Moses where his parents understood that he was particularly favored by God. See, God had told Abraham that the Israelites would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And Moses' parents, being believers, they would have known that. And they would have known that by now that time of deliverance from Egypt was close by. And with the birth of baby Moses being believers, they knew about the sanctity of life. That every baby is precious in God's sight no matter what the government says. But beyond that, even beyond that, there was something about this baby that marked him out as being favored by God, as one who was going to be used by God. And so, by faith, Moses' parents hid their child for three months despite Pharaoh's order that all baby boys should be killed. Now imagine those, even those first three months, how difficult it would have been to hide this child. I mean, every time the baby cried, day or night, you know, they would have to somehow 
cover that sound, you know, somehow muffle that sound. I don't know how they did that. Or think about the older siblings of Moses, Aaron and Miriam. The parents would have to be so careful with the way that they interacted with other children so that they wouldn't let the secret out that they now have a newborn baby brother in their home. And I'm sure Pharaoh's soldiers would have their regular rounds looking for Israelite baby boys. And if they were caught, the baby would be dead and they would be dead. And, and, and I want you to understand, Pharaoh was the most powerful king of the most powerful nation at this point in history. You know, sometimes we think of our little state and we, you know, think of perhaps a previous premier who seemed like a powerful person. I mean, we're talking about the most powerful king of the most powerful nation at this point in history. Pharaoh could do whatever he wanted, but Moses' parents defied Pharaoh's command. Two ordinary Israelite slaves, though believers, defied this most powerful king and hid their baby for three months. They were able to do so only by faith. Because they trusted that God had a special plan for this baby. That he was beautiful in his eyes. What can we learn from this? Well, one thing's for sure. While we are called to submit to the government and respect the government and even pray for government officials, as Christians, our allegiance ultimately is to the Lord. And if the government ever tells us to do something that is against who God is and what he stands for, we must not submit to the government. And so, maybe even as parents, there will be times when the government will say, you need to do this to your child. You need to teach this to your child. You need to have your child exposed to certain things. There is a mandate on believer parents to protect their children from such worldly ways. And we shouldn't be scared of the authorities because of that. The reason why Moses' parents, two almost unknown Israelite slaves, believer slaves though, did what they did is because they trusted God. They did this by faith. And you know, their faith didn't end there. When it came to a point where after three months they could no longer hide in this way, 
by faith, they trusted that God would somehow continue to protect this baby. And so they thought of a wise plan and made this basket of reeds. And in God's providence, it made its way to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter adopted this child. And we all know the story. Miriam, Moses' older sister, came and said, hey, would you like a nanny to look after this little baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. And so Miriam goes and gets Moses' mother to feed the baby and to help him and to feed him and to strengthen him. And basically was, Moses was, his, was with his mother for quite a long while till he grew up. And then he was brought back into the palace. What's interesting is, even after Moses grows up, And he has this confrontation with one of the Egyptians, as we will see later. Acts 7.25, there we read that when Moses first made this attempt to sort of defend his people, Moses thought that God was using him to rescue the people of God. Now, I want to ask you, how, how does Moses understand that? If by the time he's 40 years old, he's grown up in Egypt, how does he understand the Israelites are his people? How does he understand and have this notion that he was the one who was going to redeem God's people? Well, I'll tell you how. Through his parents. See, from the time he was born, he was born in a home with believer parents. Very humble beginnings. And they were careful with the time that they had with him to bring him up in the ways of the Lord. To instruct him in the ways of the Lord. To teach him about God and his promises, and his ways, and the Redeemer that would come. And I think this should be a great encouragement to those of us who are parents. Perhaps the mom who's so busy trying to look after little kids and worn out and thinks she's not doing much. Perhaps the dad who's doing different things and trying to bring up the children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but maybe discouraged thinking, I, I don't know what I'm doing, or all of this seems so insignificant. Well, I trust that this will be an encouragement. Because precisely because Moses grew up in this environment, as one commentator put it, as he breathed in this air, 
in the family home, it significantly influenced Moses. Sure, parents can't transfer their faith onto their children. It is ultimately a work of God. But there is a way in which parents, through the life that they live and what they teach their kids, as they trust God, as they follow Jesus, as imperfectly as it may be, as they do that, trusting God, that God will do wonderful things with that. For those of you, maybe young people, if you are a Christian, I want to I wanna ask you to you know, go home, thank your parents for their faithfulness. Not talking about perfection. Moses' parents were certainly not perfect. Moses was never a perfect person. But the fact that they trusted God and they trusted in God's ways to bring you up in the ways of the Lord. And in large part, if you are a Christian today and you grew up in a Christian home, is because of that influence. Children, Think of the sacrifices, perhaps, that your parents would have had to make just so that you could be protected, just so that you could have a home where you could be taught the things of God, the things that may have cost your parents. I want you to think through that and go back home and thank your parents. Because by faith, Moses' parents trusted God and brought him up in the ways of the Lord. Not only did they save Moses, ultimately Moses would be instrumental in saving the entire nation of Israel. So that's the first thing that we see. Faith models allegiance to God. The second thing that we see here is that faith clings to satisfaction from God. Verses 24 to 26. Faith clings to satisfaction from God. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Remember, Egypt was the greatest nation in the world at the time. Prosperous, flourishing, and Moses was, grew up as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Again, if you turn back to Acts 7 and verse 22, it says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. He received the best education in the world at the time. Now, you only have to read the first five books of the Bible that Moses has written. And if you carefully observe, you can see the intricate structure of each book and how he connects different things even between those first five books and different things even thematically. And it just shows how well he was educated. And God used that even in how the first five books were written in the Bible. Now Moses also had other privileges of being raised as a member of the royal family. He had power. He had wealth. He had status. You know, anything he wanted, snap his fingers and it would pretty much be there. For the majority of the first 40 years of, this, of his life, he lived as part of the royal family. He could essentially have anything he wanted. But then Moses made a deliberate choice when he grew up. Again, you know, even as I've spoken to some of the young people here, I want to say this. Yes, the influence of the parents can be great if you grew up in a Christian home and your parents have, as imperfect as they may have been, have imperfectly tried to bring you up in the ways of the Lord. But that faith is not transferable. That faith has to be personalized. And at some point, you as an individual needs to make a choice for yourself and can't bank on the faith of your parents. And that's what we see here, that Moses made a deliberate choice when he grew up. Verse 25 says that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, now this doesn't mean Moses just outright went to Pharaoh's daughter and said, I don't want to be treated as a royal Egyptian. But his actions spoke louder than words. See, when Moses was 40 years old, he went out to see the Israelites. He saw an Egyptian beating one of the Israelites. And Moses took things into his own hands and he murdered that Egyptian. Was it wrong and sinful for Moses to kill that Egyptian? Yeah, it was. It was sinful. But by his actions, what Moses said that day was, I'd rather choose to identify with the people of God than the pleasures of Egypt. He knew from that day on he would suffer if he identified with the Israelites. But he deliberately made that choice. 
And the issue here, it isn't just about the riches. It isn't that, you know, someone who is a believer cannot be rich or have a position of power or prestige or whatever. That all believers have to be poor. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Abraham and Job, they were rich men. Joseph, as we've seen in the book of Genesis, he himself was a prime minister of Egypt. He was also very influential and powerful and rich in Egypt itself. And you might say, well, what's the issue with Moses? Why can't he just be like another Joseph? Well, the difference is this. Joseph lived as an Israelite, as a person who trusted in the living God in Egypt, was publicly known to everyone. For Moses, though, if he were to remain a member of the royal family and have the pleasures that come with it, he would have to be seen as an Egyptian, as an unbeliever, as an idol worshiper. So for Moses to be associated as one among the godless people enjoying all the riches would have been sinful. That's the issue. So he chose instead to be mistreated and suffer along with the people of God. This Moses did only by faith. I want you to think about this as well, just for a moment. He had access to all the treasure of Egypt, but he chose to associate with the people of God. And the people of God at the time, they were a bunch of smelly slaves who were afflicted and persecuted for decades. In the world's eyes, these people were nothing and had nothing. But what they did have was the living God and his word. So for Moses to make that decision to be identified with the Israelites, it certainly had to be an act of faith. But it wasn't blind faith. Verse 26 says how he reasoned out and trusted God. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, it's interesting that it says here the reproach of Christ because Christ, or the Messiah, came many centuries after Moses. Then then what does it mean that he considered the reproach of Christ? Well, I think this is what it means. Moses knew of a Redeemer that would come. He knew of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death in this world. He knew that this seed of the woman, this redeemer, would be a king who would come from the line of Judah. So how do I know that he knew that? Well, Moses is the one who wrote Genesis, and it's all written in Genesis. So Moses reasoned out his faith this way. 
All the pleasures in Egypt, yes, they bring pleasure, but they're fleeting. They're temporary. They'll be gone. They'll be here today and they'll be gone tomorrow. So I don't want to be seen as Egyptian royalty who does not know the Lord. I would rather be mistreated with the people of God for the sake of trusting in the Redeemer, for the sake of trusting in the Messiah who is going to come. Why? Because the reward that the Messiah will bring is nothing compared to what this world has to offer. It'll be a life of eternal pleasure and eternal life dwelling with the Messiah himself in a new world where there will be no curse of sin and death. And so Moses reasoned out his faith this way. And he reasoned out that this was far greater to be identified with the people of God, even if they're suffering, to be identified with them than to go with anything this world has to offer. Because in the end, God's people will prevail and God's promises and reward will come to his people when the Redeemer will come and make everything new. What can we learn from this about faith and the pleasures of this world? I think there's a general principle even about just how to deal with sin. No matter what sin we're dealing with, no matter what lie we're believing that sin may be promising to, a, to us, we must understand while there is some pleasure in sin that it is ultimately temporary and fleeting. They're short-lived. Sin is like a sweet-tasting poison that says, drink me, drink me, this will be so good for you, and you take a gulp, and you get the sweetness for a brief moment, and then it kills you. See, the only way to overcome the lures of sinful pleasure, whatever that sinful pleasure may be, is to entrust yourself to God and all that he has said. And particularly all that he has said about Jesus in the context of what Hebrews is saying. We must, by faith, believe in God's word. We must entrust ourselves to his word saying, my joy, my pleasure, my satisfaction will be ultimately fulfilled, not by this person, not by that thing, not by this career, not by whatever else, not by this particular circumstance, not by this certain perception of a family or whatever else. No, it will only be fulfilled when I will ultimately will be with Jesus and he will make everything new. Perhaps this morning, more than struggling with issues of sin, maybe you're struggling with the cost of being a Christian. Where you've had to give up so much for following Jesus. 
And life has just become more harder for you since you've become a Christian. Maybe you've lost friends because you've become a Christian. Maybe you've lost family support because you've become a Christian. Maybe you've lost jobs or particular opportunities because you've become a Christian. Or some other loss. I want to tell you, brother or sister, if that is you, don't give in and go back to the world thinking that's going to be better. This doesn't seem better. Continue to entrust yourself to God and his word and he will sustain you and he will give you the ultimate reward when Jesus returns, which is what? An eternal life with him. Where we will have joy and pleasure and satisfaction and peace like we have never experienced in this world. And so much more than we can ever imagine what that life will be like when Jesus will return one day. And that's the only way we fight the pleasures of this world and continue to persevere by clinging to the fact that satisfaction comes from God. Now thirdly, faith waits patiently on God. Verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, after Moses killed the Egyptian who was beating an Israelite, the following day, Moses goes up. And this time he sees two Israelites and they're fighting each other. And Moses asks, Why are you fighting? And look at what unfolds in Exodus 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now here in Exodus, it says that Moses was afraid and that Moses fled from Egypt and stayed in Egypt uh, and stayed in Midian. But the author of Hebrews says that Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh when he left Egypt. Now because there seems to be a contradiction here, there's a lot of debate as to whether the author of Hebrews is talking about Moses leaving Egypt the first time to Midian or if it's talking about Moses leaving Egypt the second time with the Israelites in the Exodus. I still lean toward the fact that the author of Hebrews is talking about the first time he left Egypt after he had killed that Egyptian as he left for Midian. See, what you see in Exodus 2 is that his own people, the Israelites, rejected him. When Moses was trying to help them and in all that he was doing, he was thinking he was coming to be the deliverer. They respond by saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? So at this point, he understood, okay, everyone knows of what I've done and my own people have rejected me at this time. 
It's not the right time for me now to act. As one commentator has noted, noted, he says, quote, Moses had the insight to see that God's hour had not yet struck. And therefore, he resolutely turned his back on the course he had begun to tread. Close quote. So he left Egypt, yes, to preserve his life, and went to Midian, trusting in God's promises and in God's time to deliver his people. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure if I'm with you there. When it says Moses was afraid, and here it says Moses wasn't afraid. Well, think of it like this. When Moses' parents hid Moses as a baby, there was certainly an element of fear. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have hidden the baby. They would have just said, okay, I have no fear. Let the baby be out. You know, no fear whatsoever. But that's not what they did. They actually hid the baby. But the primary motivation for hiding the child was because of their faith in God and that God had some purpose for this child and they were being shrewd and wise about it. But it was not a fear that ultimately led them. It was their faith in God. Similarly, when there's this, while there was certainly a certain amount of fear for his life, Moses fled from Egypt not because of some personal self-serving fear, no, he fled because of the awareness of what he knew that God had called him to do, to be the deliverer. See, if Moses had stayed in Egypt at that time, it would have been foolish. It would not be acting in faith. I mean, it's, it's almost like people jumping out of uh, a cliff saying, I have faith. No, that's, that's foolishness. That's not faith. Wisdom would say that, no, you shouldn't go down this path. So Moses, in faith, left Egypt, not afraid of Pharaoh, and went to a foreign land, Midian. And he would stay in Midian for another 40 years. And he would endure and persevere in the faith. And what would he do during these 40 years? He'd live as a shepherd, looking after his father-in-law's flocks. I mean, it seemed like Moses wanted to do big things for God. But how is being a shepherd in obscurity going to help with all that? I don't think Moses knew exactly how and when God was going to bring about all that he had promised. But Moses did know that God would still fulfill his promise. And so Moses kept going. He endured in faith, the verse says, by seeing him who was invisible. Yes, God was invisible to Moses as he went to Midian at first. And so at that point, Moses had to entrust himself to God and his word and his ways. And he kept his gaze on God, patiently waiting on God, the invisible God, 
So much so that the invisible God and his purposes became more and more real to him than anything else in the world. I mean, isn't that what the author of Hebrews first said? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. When you entrust yourself to God, all that God has promised, those things become so substantive, so real in your life that it, it directs how you live your life. You know, perhaps there's some of you here struggling because you're living in obscurity for Jesus. Oh, I had great plans to do this and that for Jesus. And now you're thinking, but now me being in this place, in this season of this life, or this circumstance that I find myself in, how is this any good? How is this going to accomplish God's purposes in furthering the name of Jesus? Or maybe some of you, it's not living in obscurity for Jesus. For some of you, it's the struggle of living publicly your faith for Jesus because of a fear of man. Fear of what others might think of you if you just lived out your faith publicly. Or maybe it's the fear of what people in power over you might do to you if you follow Jesus and his way of living. Well, if it's obscurity or living in public for Jesus, the antidote for both is the same. That we keep our eyes fixed on God and his word. And as we do that, the things of God become more real to us. That even though we cannot see him, we know by faith that Jesus is sustaining us. That by faith, we begin, it becomes even more substantive in our lives that he's doing all things for the good of his people and for his glory, no matter what my situation that he will accomplish his purposes in his time. And I can trust him with my life. And in this way, we can persevere in the faith. And so faith waits patiently on God and lastly and quickly. Faith looks to God for salvation, verse 28. Faith looks to God for salvation. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now this is talking about the 10th plague. What the Lord said was that You are to kill a lamb and you are to put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. And if they didn't do that, 
the destroyer would come. And the firstborn in every house, whether you're an Israelite or an Egyptian, judgment would fall. That's what God said. And so what did Moses do and what did he encourage the rest of the Israelites to do? To do just that. They killed a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and over the lentil of the door. And as the destroyer of the firstborn passed through and saw the blood, he passed over. Now it says here that Moses did this by faith. Yeah, he had to take God at his word. He didn't think of, how is just putting some blood on the doorpost going to save me? There's no magic in my little lamb. But this is what God said. This is God's provision. Because God said the destroyer would come. And his provision to be saved from judgment was the blood of the Lamb. And Moses did this by faith. And he and all, all the Israelites were saved. What's the application here? I think, I think it's quite clear for those of us who are Christians Because in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. But perhaps there's someone here who's not a Christian, who's not a believer. And I want to tell you this. If your concept of God is simply that God is a God of love and a God who just winks at sin and he will just forgive me and everything will be hunky-dory in the end. I want to tell you, based on what Scripture says, you are gravely mistaken. God is a God that does not wink at sin. He is a God of judgment. He judged people during the time of Noah, but he provided a way by which people could be saved by getting into the ark. And those who entrusted themselves to God and his provision were saved, which was Noah and his family, and he decimated everyone else on earth. God said he would bring judgment in Egypt and all those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, that was his means of salvation and trusted God with that, they would be saved. And exactly as God said, Moses and his family and the Israelites were saved and the firstborn of the Egyptian families were all killed. But God has also said, judgment is still coming. You see, as human beings, 
as men and women and children, we all have sinned against a holy God. And so we stand guilty before him and we all deserve judgment from him. And he has said, when Jesus comes again, those who have not put their trust in Jesus, they will be judged and ultimately thrown into an eternal lake of fire, which is eternal judgment. But let me also tell you, friends, that God in his kindness and his grace has provided a way by which, as he has done, Throughout the ages, they were all just symbols and pictures of a great way of salvation. And it's, it's a salvation in a very holistic sense, and ultimately it's salvation from the judgment of God. Because all of us deserve the judgment of God. And he did this by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world to die as a substitute, like a lamb that was killed for sinners like you and me, to die in the place of sinners like you and me and to take the punishment of you and me. And then he rose up on the third day so that all who would turn and trust in Jesus would be saved. I would ask you to consider these words carefully and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and entrust yourself to him and in God's provision of salvation. And you will be saved. For those of us who are Christians, you're thinking, I don't have the kind of faith that Moses had, or the kind of faith his parents had, I would say, brother, sister, you're still thinking of faith wrong. The point of Hebrews 11 is that all these flawed people simply entrusted themselves to God and his word. And they were rewarded for their faith. May God bless these words. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have as Christians who already possess that eternal life. And now we can entrust ourselves to you and your word. We thank you for your promises that are true We thank you for your purposes that will ever stand. We thank you for Jesus and in his, in the way that he died in our place. We thank you that he's continuing to sustain us and one day we will be with him. Lord, help us not to focus on the strength of our faith, on the strength of the faith of others but help us to gaze on you and your powerful word and everything that you have said about your son, Jesus Christ. 
and help us to simply entrust ourselves to you, knowing you do it all. Lord, we look forward to that day when when our ultimate reward of being with Jesus will become a reality. Till that time, help us to by faith entrust ourselves to you. This we pray for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.